the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 68 of Magic Markets. And Mo, we've got a really fun one up tonight. Well, it's always fun, but sometimes it's a bit lighter and sometimes it's a bit heavier on the insights. I mean, last week we learned some really incredible stuff all about investing in tough places. And this week you and I are going to chat about a couple of industries that are of interest to us. It's stuff that we've been looking at in Magic Markets Premium. One of those is the quick service restaurant industry, which is certainly close to my heart because I do enjoy a burger or a coffee often at the same time. And the other is the art of storytelling, another one that is very close to both our hearts, actually, not least of all as parents, but I think because we're both kids at heart as well. Absolutely, Ghost. I mean, just such a pleasure to do this. And to our listeners, you know, welcome to Magic Markets. Uh, For those of you that sit and look at Premium, you will have seen some of the content that we've covered. For example, this week, we've published something on Starbucks. Uh, So really exciting. And if if you're interested in that company, join us inside Premium. Uh, And in terms of storytelling, you know, we've covered a whole bunch of stocks in that space. We've covered the likes of a Disney and a Netflix uh, and a Hasbro as well more recently. So I think some nice core themes that tend to come through in Magic Markets Premium. And so we're just happy to try and share some of that with those of you that haven't joined us in premium, uh, just to share some of those insights and hope that you learn along the way and feel the need to maybe at some point in time, join us inside Magic Markets Premium as well. So let's have some fun. Ghost, I don't know if you want me to just jump in here, because I mean, quick service restaurants. I mean, you and I both know that we both like our fast foods at some point in time. Uh, we've just done Starbucks, as I indicated, and I'm, I love coffee. And I probably drink way too much coffee. But why don't you just give us a quick run through in terms of some of the key differences that exist here? I mean, there's so many models. Why don't we first kick off on something like, for example, you know, franchises versus corporate owned? Because I think that's a key distinction. Yeah, thanks, man. The quick service restaurant space is something that any listener can relate to, which is why we like it. So just think about your own habits. I mean, these restaurants range from literally a hole in the wall, dark kitchen designed only for Uber, for example, where you can order from a counter and that's about it, through to like a steers where there might be a couple of places to sit, you know, and then it kind of progresses all the way through. Think about a spur. You can get takeaways there, but there's lots of places to sit. You can order drinks. They are licensed all the way through then to full-service restaurants. And that's the key differentiator is then you're getting a waiter, you know, who expects a tip at the end of the night, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the key distinctions, as you've pointed out correctly, is the sort of franchise versus corporate-owned. And it's really important to understand the difference here because it actually comes down to ultimately a capital strategy and then what the head office is getting in return for that. So the benefit of franchising, and that's how, for example, a famous brands has worked, is that you are using other people's money to grow your footprint. So instead of famous brands paying to open another Steers branch, someone is approaching them and saying, hey, there's a new mall nearby. I want to be the Steers. Thank you. Here's my franchise fee. 
let me sign the agreement and get it done. Now, the benefit of that is you can scale, obviously, a lot faster, but it changes the economics. For example, the people who work for that steers are not working for famous brands. They are working for a little company that owns that steers. And sometimes these franchisees actually own several stores, and they are quite big businesses in their own rights. You'll often see a master franchisee for a region. Now, a corporate-owned process or corporate-owned strategy is where the company in question actually pays to roll out those stores. It owns the stores. All the staff work for that company. Now, the benefit here, you have absolute control over your quality. So this is why Woolworths, which is not a quick service restaurant, obviously, but they moved away from franchise grocery stores into corporate-owned stores so that they could completely control the quality, which is why any Woolworths you go to gives you much the same experience in South Africa. Similar vibe in the restaurants. If it's corporate-owned stores, you should get a similar experience, but then you need lots of capital to roll it out. And the income statements look very different. One is a wholesale business. The franchise model is a wholesale business that earns royalty income as well. And the head office will also have the rights to the brand. So for example, the Steers sauce you buy in the stores is money earned by famous brands, not the local franchisee. So that's another trick to that model that is worth understanding. The corporate-owned model, you know, you'll see everything on the income statement, staff, everything else. And Starbucks, for example, that we've just covered this week, very heavy on the corporate-owned stores. So you see a lot of the sort of cost pressures like wages and supply chain coming through in their numbers. I think, Ghost, I mean, that's it's interesting insight. And I think it's also not a one-size-fits-all. So, for example, I, I recall Nando's. You know, in South Africa, a very successful franchised-operated model. But in some regions, all of their stores are corporate-owned. So, you know, I think... It depends on the type of outlook for a market. You know, do you want to have it corporate owned so that you can actually, you have the balance sheet, you can roll it out and you can control quality. Uh, And I think that's quite a nice distinction. I mean, one of the other distinctions that I also think are worth adding in here is that you get the kind of full service restaurant model, you know, or you get the quick grab a bite and go type of, of restaurant model. And then you get the hybrid. So if, if you look at something like a McDonald's, you've got this drive-through model. In fact, even in Starbucks, we've just covered how important the likes of a drive-through model is here in North America. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that as well. Yeah, exactly. And don't knock McDonald's. I mean, it's a very embarrassing personal story, but that's where Mrs. Ghost and I shared our first date. I'm not going to go into details of how we ended up at McDonald's. It's even where we had our first kiss. So there we have it. I mean, you can't knock McDonald's for being a romantic place. Just kidding. I would never recommend that to anyone. Uh, so the drive through model is what you're talking about there and that's you know driving up to a mcdonald's ordering at the window and you go or you can walk in you can sit there you can really go on a date if you really want to i suppose and mcdonald's has been a real estate led model so they own the sites globally that's been their whole key differentiator just think about it in south africa mcdonald's has the best sites generally speaking they are at the intersections of the busiest roads They are on the way home from the nightlife. That's the McDonald's model. And it's made it extremely difficult for a Burger King, for example, to come in and compete with McDonald's because they just couldn't get these premium sites. It's really hard. Famous brands, speaking of sites, you'll often see a Debonair's next door to a Steers next door to a Fisherways or a Milky Lane. Why? Because that's all famous brands. So they send one truck to deliver the pizza, the burgers for steers, all of the ingredients that are needed for all of those shops, and that is effectively the economies of scale coming through. And something else you see with these different models is localization of menus. So for example, McDonald's will sell you, and I know this because I've had one, a blue cheese burger in France. That was not the McDonald's where the date was. It wasn't as romantic as France, I'm afraid. We also had an amazing ice cream 
at a McDonald's in Italy. Amazing. One of the best ice creams of my life, genuinely. And they do all kinds of other stuff depending on what country they actually operate in. So it's a very stamped out approach, but it's got a little bit of localization. And the actual format of the store varies as well, sort of depending where you are. And some of these quick service models are still based on a more premium approach, like a Starbucks, which has clearly positioned itself above a McDonald's or a Dunkin' Donuts. It's a more upmarket experience, which means they get more money from each person who walks in the door, even though it's quick service and away you go. And you also get the delivery champions. So that's like a Domino's, for example, which failed in South Africa completely. But it's been huge in the US and it's done incredibly well in the pandemic, very much based around delivering pizza to your home. And uh, it just shows, again, some of these brands don't travel well internationally. I'm not sure why Domino's failed in South Africa, but it did. It just never really worked. You know, it couldn't scale. And speaking of traveling well, I think you've already touched on Nando's. I mean, that deserves a special mention. It's one of South Africa's very best exported brands, let's face it. Another one that's just worth touching on is in the full-service restaurant space, you obviously have your licensed restaurants, and they were smashed by COVID in South Africa because of the government restrictions. So if you look at famous brands, for example, they have a segment called Signature Brands, and that would include the restaurants where you would typically go and order you know, some wine with your steak, for example. And if you look at the latest sort of you know, revenue guidance from famous brands, that segment has bounced back a lot harder versus last year than the steers, for example, because last year was so terrible because of the COVID restrictions. And Spur has probably done the most interesting job of being somewhere in the middle, right? Because they're targeting parents who are looking to go and have a half-decent meal, maybe have a drink with it as well. Good value for money and a sort of kid-friendly environment. And then this last kind of restaurant segment or, or format is high-end or fine-dining you don't really see this in listed companies because inevitably these are spearheaded by well-known chefs. You know, this is like a passion business. It's super hard to scale. It's based around a specific concept. It's not something that's rolled out en masse. And just anecdotally, before we move on, we've all heard of these Michelin star restaurants, right? And it's actually a great story. The Michelin brothers compiled the first guide all the way back in 1900, it's a long time ago, because they wanted to create demand for vehicles. They wanted people to travel to have great experiences and when they started it wasn't just restaurants that was in this guide but by the time we got sort of after world war one in those boom years in the 20s then it became all about these fine dining restaurants and that's when michelin star ratings were given out for the first time rather than just a guide and the whole thing was around getting your car drive to these restaurants have the experience and obviously the michelin brothers were hoping you would have michelin tires fitted which you know you would then need to replace at some point you know, Ghost, that's, that's fascinating. I, I actually never knew where Michelin stars came from. I always thought it's because when you eat at all of these restaurants, you end up looking a little bit like the Michelin man, you know? That's McDonald's, Mo. That's McDonald's. <laughs> that's certainly my story. And, and to, your, to your McDonald's story, you know, incidentally, McDonald's in France make really good macarons, right? So that regionalization is just so, so key. And I think it's, it's fascinating because at the end of the day, you know, it's been such a terrible time for restaurants. We've seen a lot of restaurants closing down. I mean, your points on the kind of full service restaurants. I think South Africa does food really well. And maybe that's exactly why these international cookie cutter blueprints of a Domino's, for example, maybe they don't translate as well in South Africa, because I think South Africans don't realize how awesome their food really is until you travel outside or you live outside of the country for some time. So, you know, that certainly leaves me feeling a little bit nostalgic for for home and maybe a nice spur and maybe a nice tashes when I'm down there it certainly was one of my, my key breakfast and lunch places. Yeah, I, I love that story about the Michelin men. And I'm, I'm going to try and slim down as we go into Northern Hemisphere summer, I think. 
Michelin stars, man. Michelin stars. Don't confuse the two. But I'll tell you what, moving on to what you're going to talk about, really, which is the storytelling. I mean, there was another really important household name in addition to Michelin stars, much more important than Michelin stars, that also came from the 20s and actually pretty much in the Great Depression. And that was Disney. And that's a stock that we've covered on on Magic Markets Premium. And that's all about this beautiful art of storytelling, which is a theme that's come through in a few shows for us. I think so. I mean, Ghost, we've spoken about it a lot. Uh, We like storytelling businesses. Now, what do we mean when we say, you know, storytelling businesses? You know, my my macro lens, I like to zoom all the way out. And I would say that if, if we look at it, you know, entertainment has certainly existed through the ages, and it's arguably always been big business. So depending on how far back you want to go, you know, storytelling is an innate part of human nature. From the time we were scribbling stuff on the walls of caves, I think back to ancient Rome and the theaters and the Hippodrome, which was the F1 of its day. You know, the guys racing around like Ben-Hur on their chariots. Uh, think of the Colosseum, where they had these gladiatorial fights. So that's all storytelling. It's theater. It's entertainment. And then when we look at fairy tales, you know, those were invented in and around 17th century France. Thereafter, you've had these massive theaters and opera houses that sprung up across Europe. And those are testament to massive investments that we've seen in that entertainment and storytelling space. So when we then move from that into the more modern era, you know, again, cast your mind back to the 60s, the 70s. And we went from an era of books and newspapers and magazines. Those businesses did really, really well in that era. And then that transformed into radio and television. And your big studios made a lot of money. And arguably Disney, for example, in its studio business is one of those. Uh, And it's now transitioning from that into social media. So I like to look at it with this mega theme lens on being entertainment. And then within that, you can almost break it down into the stories, for example, or the storytellers. And then the channels or the mechanisms through which those stories are told. And I think that's the distinction when we look at some of the stocks that we've covered in in Magic Markets Premium. Yeah, absolutely. All this is is the evolution of people telling stories around a fire, as you say, drawing on cave walls, literally. And now these are huge global businesses powered by distribution, but also by creativity. And that's why I think it's something that we enjoy so much is, you know, we are ultimately also in the business of producing content. It may not be, you know, My Little Pony, or I like to think it's not, but it all comes down to taking content and distributing it out there to the world. And that ultimately is what these companies do, isn't it? And I mean, it, it is My Little Pony because we covered Hasbro in Magic Markets Premium and they, they're, the, they're the guys who own the IP around My Little Pony. But let's maybe split this down into the two sections, right? We, we Let's look at the content producers because In the content producers, we looked at the likes of Disney. But the fact of the matter is, early days, Disney didn't really create its own content. It appropriated content that was already part of the public domain. So if you look at, I think the first feature film, Disney fairy tale, was Snow White. You know, before that, they had a whole bunch of shorts and like Red Riding Hood and that those were all created in a shorter format. But the first feature film was Snow White in and around the 1930s. They didn't own that IP. It was public domain. It came from the Brothers Grimm. And what's been so interesting, and again, let's, when I said fairy tales were created in the 17th century in France, that's when the Brothers Grimm were around, and they wrote a whole bunch of these fascinating stories. So by the time Disney came along, it was all public domain, and what Disney did is they took it, they put their own lens on it, they reimagined it, and they created that and turned it into the IP that is now the underpin of Disney. Again, I think we covered it in the premium show where a lot of the early stage Disney stuff is technically becoming public domain now. So the question mark is, can they enforce their copyright on something even as iconic as Mickey Mouse, for example? But Disney back then appropriated the public domain IP, reimagined it, 
And they own that. They own that reimagining of those stories. And what Disney has done that's been so successful is that they were there for part of the evolution. You know, as mankind evolved from writing on cave walls into theater, that's kind of what Disney's done in the in the modern age, is they created feature-length films, and then it became, you know, stuff that was initially, you know, early days wasn't colorized, then it became colorized, and they were there for the early stages of television and movies, and then they transitioned that into theme parks and just additional new ways of telling the story. So Disney's almost a hybrid because they're not just the content owners. They've created new content, obviously. So they're not just the content owners and the IP owners, but they're also the owners of very inventive ways of telling those stories, of the platforms. And before we even move off those content producers, you know, I want to almost focus on another stock that we covered in, in Magic Markets Premium, which was Hasbro. And I, I said it in the premium show. I said, you know, maybe you want to consider that as Disney Light because they're kind of following a similar playbook. They own some of their own characters and maybe it's not born out of fairy tales. It's born out of toys. They created really successful toys that they could sell to kids and then they transform that into media that can be digested, whether that's a movie or a series. But it's almost the same journey from the other side, from a different segment of the market that creates new stories that people enjoy telling and want to actually immerse themselves in, even when they're adults as well. And Hasbro is fascinating because they are a bit of a hybrid. They make toys for Disney, but they also have something called Magic the Gathering, which we talked about in the show, which is a tabletop card game. And I was in Nasna this long weekend, and there, funnily enough, on Teasen Island was a little gaming store, Magic the Gathering in the window. And, you know, once you've done these shows and you can't help yourself, so you go in, speak to the guy behind the counter. Well, it turns out they have, you know, occasional tournaments. There's like 10 people in Nasna who play it's small, but it just shows, you know, here's this company Hasbro and all the way in Neisner on the other end of the world is a group of 10 people, friends who get together to play this particular game. It's all the same theme. It's the storytelling. It's the desire for community. It's all the stuff that makes us human. And we like investing in companies that are addressing that, right? So go, go to your point around that sense of belonging of the network effect is also something that we, we touch on. And it's not just in the storytelling businesses. You know, we'd, we'd spoken about network effect in other businesses as well that we cover in premium. But specifically in this context, the network effect in something like Netflix, for example, is a nice way to segue into the platform owners. You know, we've discussed the content owners. Let's discuss the platform owners. If you're the only person not watching a particularly popular show on Netflix, you're gonna, there's some peer pressure to get involved. And so network effects become very powerful for some of these businesses. And I think that's worked for the likes of a, of a Netflix, which went about this the other way around. You know, so, you know, it's almost, I would say, the second tier of the storytelling businesses are the guys that don't necessarily own the stories or create the stories. They're the ones that create the platforms on which the stories are showcased. Now, Netflix is one of those where they create the platform first and now they are developing their own stories. And obviously, some question marks around, you know, should they focus on movies or should they focus on the series? You know, I think there's some some of those semantics that we cover very nicely in the premium show. So again, for those of you that haven't joined us in Magic Markets Premium, how this translates into actionable investment insights all sit inside Magic Markets Premium. I just want to point you in that direction. But the important thing is that these things all link together. So Netflix, for example, have created some IP that they've then partnered with Hasbro on in terms of creating toys for the series that Netflix are producing. So it's this nice, neat little ecosystem that ties in quite nicely. And I almost want to raise my last point on just differentiated platforms here to say social media is not just about the network effects. Social media, if you really look at it with a different lens, 
is about people telling their own stories. That's really what social media has become, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, whatever it may be. And so the question mark is, do you want to own the business that owns the content, the stories? Do you want to own the platform that facilitates the dissemination of these stories? And it's an important question because the economics behind those businesses are very, very different. And my one thing I just want to touch on, I think, before we finish up is this art of storytelling also applies to sport. And talking of Netflix, Formula One Drive to Survive has done for that sport something that nothing else has ever done. I mean, I've watched Formula One since forever. I think you're much the same. But suddenly in the last couple of years, now everyone is a Formula One fan. And that's literally because of Drive to Survive. There's no other reason. Netflix has this enormous base of over 200 million people they can push content to. They go and tell the stories behind Formula One and Ben. It's now this super popular sport. And sadly, where Netflix missed out is they didn't get the option to buy equity from Liberty Media, which was, you know, in retrospect... A mistake because they have helped Liberty Media so much. I don't know what the economics are behind the scenes of Drive to Survive, but gosh, Netflix has done them a big favor there. I think, again, it's so important because it's that differentiation between the platform and the content owner. You know, Liberty Media is the content owner. F1 sits in that stable. Very powerful. Yes, I've been watching it for time immemorial. I'm very glad that the the sport's getting the kind of airtime in a new modern day of, of, of streaming. The last point I just wanted to raise here to wrap up ghost is that platforms are good for distribution, but they're also subject to obsolescence. What I mean when I say that is that the Coliseum still stands there, but it's not used for gladiatorial tournaments anymore. You know, we ended up moving those and moving those to sports stadiums where we watch our sports. And remember in Disney, for example, there's ESPN. That's where the sports sit. So you really have to apply that lens of what is society digesting? What is society receptive to? What kind of storytelling, whether that's movies or series or sport. It's all storytelling or podcasts, for example. Uh, Do you want to own the content that might have some longevity, but potentially be a lot more volatile? Maybe your brand works, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe My Little Pony is popular this year and it's not next year. Or do you want to own the platform? Maybe the economics are different, but what happens when people move off your platform, when they move from radio to TV or from TV to social media? I think these are pressing, very important questions to contextualize the investment story as we go into our own journey of storytelling. And Mo, one other really important point is that these macro themes make a world of sense. Storytelling, super strong, but as you say, some of those platforms can become obsolete. So the point here is there can be a great macro idea for your portfolio, which is, hey, I like storytelling, or hey, I like restaurants. I like the fact that people you know, want to have a burger, but there's just so much more to it than that. And that's exactly what we cover in Magic Markets Premium. We do that sort of in-depth look at the numbers, look at the valuation. It doesn't help to buy the best storytelling business in the world at an insane valuation. You know, that's what we do in premium. And again, I would invite any of the listeners, if you've enjoyed this show, then uh, you will love Magic Markets Premium. Yeah, thanks, Ghost. I think that's a nice place to wrap it. We hope you certainly, our listeners, you've enjoyed this. Uh, if you've already joined us in Premium, thanks so much for being a subscriber. And if not, I hope this whets your appetite and you know, join us in Premium. You know, It's 99 Rand a month. I think we've really gone out there to try and keep this accessible to every investor out there. We want institutional level insights to be accessible to you. So guys, go and check us out. It's magic-markets.com. And we hope to see you inside Magic Markets Premium soon. Ghost, it's been real. Until next week, same time, same place. Yeah, thanks, Mo. We've got some more really interesting guests next week. Can't wait. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor